Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950, talking to you from the bunker in Eden Prairie. How are you? Happy April. We're making our way towards warmth here in Minnesota. Might even get to 48 today. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Well, listen, I'm thrilled to be talking to you. You recall that this show is about idealism and idealists. That would be me, an idealist with a capital I on my forehead. And this week, it's a bit of a hodgepodge show. So for sure, we've got the big interview. That is with... Uh, Patrick Stieg of the Carver County Public Health Department. He's going to talk about a human inclusivity program, although they don't label it that way, um, named uh, Communities of Belonging. Um, In fact, I am taking part in that program. Stay tuned. I'll talk to you more. You'll hear a little bit about that with my interview with Patrick. And as we go forward this spring, we'll talk about what I'm doing with it. In my C block, I will talk about my speaking and training trip to Norfolk, Nebraska this week. It was, um, in a phrase, quite amazing. But here in the A Block, um, where I'm going to do a little hodgepodge, I want to talk about a couple of things. First, let me highlight an idealistic organization that operates behind the scenes across the world in places of great conflict where wars are happening and great human suffering is occurring. No, 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 I'm not talking about the Red Cross. But rather, I'm talking about Reporters Without Borders, which, is, which was founded in 1985 and is headquartered in Paris, France. The organization also has consultant status at the United Nations. That sounds pretty cool. What does Reporters Without Borders do? It's a nonprofit with the mission to safeguard the right to freedom of information. Founded on the belief that every human has the right to be able to access news and information. Every human should have that right. Um, Among other things, Reporters Without Borders advocates for the protection and safety of journalists who are arrested or imprisoned for reporting in a particular country. The organization also provides training to journalists in digital and physical security. It annually provides a press freedom report, the World Press Freedom Index that measures the status or state of media freedom in 180 countries. And importantly, with what's happening in Russia right now, with that country's efforts to shut out any news of the horrors of of how it is inflicting such great damage on the citizens of Ukraine, Reporters Without Borders creates access to censored websites by creating mirror sites so, you, so Russia sites, uh, shuts down websites that could provide real information, truthful information to uh, Russian citizens. What Reporters Without Borders does is it creates mirror websites to give that information. I don't exactly how, know how it works, but it sounds darn cool if you ask me. And Reporters Without Borders is also a wraparound organization for journalists. And by that I mean it really helps journalists to do their work. So... The organization provides journalists with bulletproof vests and helmets. I mean, think about that. <laughs> I mean, where are you going to get that stuff, you know? And, and it provides insurance, okay? So, like, if you die, there's, like, life insurance. And if you're hurt, there's, like, health insurance. And it also provides an emergency hotline. 
You know, like, hey, I'm in trouble or I'm going to be in trouble. And this is especially important for stringers and freelancers who aren't connected to a major news organization like the New York Times or CNN. And Reporters Without Borders appears to be an incredible organization. And I highly recommend that you Google it to learn more. But before I move on to the other part of this hodgepodge, I do want to honor the five journalists who were killed in the first month of the Russian war against Ukraine. This list includes two Ukrainian journalists and three foreign journalists. Here are their names, and I'm not going to be very good, I'm sure, at pronouncing some of them. But nonetheless, I want to honor them. The first person I'm, I want to uh, uh, mention, um, her name is Oksana Balina. She was killed in Kiev on March 23rd. And then there's Eugeny Sakov, Sakuv, S-A-K-U-W, a cameraman working for Kiev Live TV who was killed on March 1st when the Russians bombed a TV tower. And there were three other journalists killed in Ukraine. Pierre Zakreski, I'm so sorry, Z-A-K-R-Z-E-W-S-K-I, Zach Zareski, a 55-year-old cameraman who's covered, who had covered many wars. And then there's Alexandra Kushinova, a 24-year-old journalist working for Fox News. And then Brett Renard, a 51-year-old U.S. documentary filmmaker. These journalists and all others in Ukraine are bringing us the truth. Uh, that was before they died, of course. The images are searing that the other journalists are bringing us. It is all about human suffering. So the next time you see a picture from Ukraine, I mean, really, every picture you are seeing from Ukraine on the nightly news or on Twitter or wherever you get your news, every picture you see is being taken by a journalist who is risking his or her or their life to get you that picture. Think about that, please. And support Reporters Without Borders. At least go to their website and see what they're doing. Okay? All right. That's our mini featured idealist. Now for the other half of the hodgepodge. And I have to talk about what is happening to transgender people in America, particularly transgender youth in America. Now, I know. I know. I, I know. This is the fifth or sixth show just in 2022 that I've spoken about this. I know, and I know some of you may be, why do I tune in? I mean, it's like a broken record. Well, I am sorry, listeners, okay? There truly is a sort of genocidal program going against trans people, taking place, in trans, in taking place against trans people in America right now. Let me give you the numbers. As reported by NBC News on March 20, a record 238 anti-LGBTQ bills had been introduced into the U.S. as of uh, like the third week of March. Uh, with, with, out of that 238, 154 of those bills targeted transgender people, particularly transgender youth. In particular, as of today, April 1st, excuse me, April 2nd, I am taping this, but we can just say April 2nd, there are 14 14 states that have now enacted laws 
banning transgender students, mainly transgender girls, from participating in sports in their states. Now, this is from like kindergarten sports through high school sports and in most cases through college sports. In other words, you're a transgender girl. You can't get on the school team ever because of who you are. And, uh, you know, we should note that neighboring Minnesota, which I am continue to be thankful that Minnesota is progressive, that it does protect all humans, particularly transgender people. Right now, next to us, though, in Iowa and South Dakota, anti-trans bills against transgender um, sports, particularly transgender girls. Um, Now, add that this week uh, to where the governor, the governor of Utah last week vetoed an anti-transgender sports bill, vetoed the bill, saying he wanted people to live. The governor of Utah understands that you pass these bills, and what they do is they cause transgender humans in general, that would include Ellie Krug, to feel as if they are lesser But with students, with younger people, not only do they feel that they are lesser, they feel as if they don't matter, as if they have no future, as if it is hopeless. And the attempted suicide rate for transgender people is 40 times the rate for non-transgender people called cisgender people. It's in part because you have the government saying that you don't matter. But so last month, or excuse me, last week, um, Utah's governor vetoed an uh, anti-trans sports bill, vetoed it, saying, I want people to be able to live. You know what the Utah legislature did this week? They overrode the governor. <laughs> Their fear of transgender people, transgender girls in particular, so great that they overrode his veto, the governor's veto. And on top of that, four states now ban or restrict gender-affirming care, including, you know, getting therapy, like from a therapist. I mean, so that, that kids, trans girls particularly, but trans boys as well, can't get, you know, puberty-blocking drugs, okay, so that trans boys don't start to menstruate, okay, and that trans girls don't get this voice that you're listening to right now. Four states, four states... Arkansas, Tennessee, Arizona, Arizona this week, Arizona just did it on Thursday, and Texas have banned that kind of treatment. So if you are a trans kid or trans youth or the parent of one of those kids, you are out of luck. And Alabama is about to come, become the fifth state, of course, Alabama. And Alabama would require that teachers and school counselors report to parents that their child was questioning their gender identity. In other words, hey, Tough luck, transgender kid in school. You can't ever, ever even, you can't ever even get help from your teacher or school counselor. I keep coming back to where is the national outrage over this, over the government specifically targeting and discriminating against a specific group of humans. That would be transgender humans. We are the target. We have a big bullseye on our back or forehead. Can you imagine the outrage if it was, if what I was talking about instead was 154 laws against diabetic people? 
saying that children who are diabetic couldn't participate in sports. Can you imagine the outrage? And yet, no outrage whatsoever over my community. It is genocide. Thank you for uh, letting me uh, say that. Uh, we will be back um, after break with Pat Stieg from Carver County Public Health. Thank you. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio with Ellie Krug here on lovely AM 950. We have, we are now at the point of the show where we do the big interview. And I am thrilled for today's, this show's big interview being with Pat Stieg, who is a public health program specialist with the Carver County Public Health Department. That is Carver County, Minnesota. That happens to be the county I live in. Um, Pat Stieg, are you on the line? Yes, I am, Ellie. Hey, Pat. Welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled that you are here, um, and I'm, I'm just absolutely thrilled that you are here to talk about this program called uh, Communities of Belonging. Um, but first, before we get into that, okay, tell us a little bit, what is the Carver County Public Health Department? Maybe give us a, you know, a little bit of a demographics about Carver County so people have an idea about that. It is, I, it's an exurb county. It's not a suburban county. It's like on the edge. I always tell people it's on the edge of the prairie. But give us, you know, give us an idea a little bit about the county and what does the Public Health Department do? Yes, well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, Carver County, I think, is Many of your Twin Cities area listeners may know is kind of on the southwestern portion of the metro area. Um, we are the smallest of the seven counties currently in the metro area, but growing rapidly. Um, we do have um, a couple of communities on our eastern border, which uh, borders Hennepin County, um, that are a little bit more traditional suburban uh, communities. But then, as you said, as you travel west of there, uh, our communities become a little bit smaller, and um, we have a lot of rural areas and small towns and uh, a lot of farmland still. So um, that's just a quick synopsis, I guess, of our county. And um, our public health department really serves the residents of our county in helping to promote their health and well-being, to protect their health and safety, and to prevent illnesses, injuries, and deaths. Right, but their well-being is not only about public health in terms of physical, right? It's also about mental health, right? Absolutely, yeah. We view uh, health uh, very broadly, their physical and mental well-being, any aspects of health that uh, comprise our human being existence is what we try to address <laughs> to the best we can. Okay, and you know I love humans, right? And human beings are wonderful things. Pat, how long have you worked for the uh, uh, Carver County Public Health Department? Well, I've been here with the county about uh, four and a half years. I've worked in the public health profession, though, for, oh, a little more than 30. 
Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you've been around a long time then in public health. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about this concept of communities of belonging. Can you uh, tell uh, the audience what what is the program and, and how did it come about? Because, you know, Carver County, and, and I, I don't think I'm like, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to be disparaging, but it's a conservative, more conservative county than it is... Um, uh, progressive and, um, and, but communities of belonging is a kind of a progressive idea. So tell us about what the program is, how it came about. Sure. Well, our public health departments, at least every five years, we work in partnership with our residents to conduct a community health assessment. And this was last done in the period of, uh, 2018, 2019, and this then forms the basis for the development of a community health improvement plan. And so our current plan is for the period of 2020 to 2024. And our health department supported this work, but it was actually led by a group of more than 30 residents who comprised our public health advisory council. So therefore, it truly is the community's plan, and it's not the department's plan. However, our role is to now support the community in the implementation of that plan. And that particular plan currently consists of four priority issues with two to three goals for each issue. And each issue has a goal area action committee comprised of residents that guide the implementation of the plan for that particular goal. And we have one committee that guides what we call the well-being goal, which is to make well-being a shared value by having conversations in the community about how health starts in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our playgrounds and parks, and in the air we breathe and the water we drink. So as the community considered ways in which this goal might be achieved, they discussed well-being comprehensively, both for individuals and for communities. And so that includes fair opportunities and treatment in education and in training and in information and learning. It includes employment, childcare, housing, recreation, food, law enforcement, transportation, and health care, as well as actions around respect and dignity and cultural expression and justice and much more. So the committee landed on the idea that to make well-being a shared value, everyone needs to feel a sense of belonging in their community, however belonging might be defined, excuse me, how community might be defined. Um, so for anyone who might have received some training in what might be called the helping professions, um, they probably received some exposure to the psychologist Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And he laid out these uh, visually in a pyramid with psychological needs as the base of that pyramid and then needs for safety and then belonging, followed above by esteem and self-actualization. And each of those needs has something to do with our physical and mental health and well-being. But it is difficult for people to focus attention on the higher levels of that pyramid when they have not yet had the lower level needs on the pyramid fulfilled, including belonging. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, this is, this is, that is kind of high level, um, introspection <laughs> for lack of a better phrase but 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 eventually this group came up with this communities of belonging 
initiative that you are, you and uh, uh, at least one colleague that I know are spearheading. And what you're doing is you're going to individual towns, talking about the concept of belonging, right? And then you're eliciting, uh, and I know this firsthand because this is how I got involved with it. I mean, you're eliciting citizens to get involved for their particular community and do and and try to come up with an idea that will help foster a sense of belonging within the community. Do I have this right? Yes, that is correct. Okay. So how is it going and and how many communities have you gone to? I know that you've given this, you know, you've given a talk about communities of belonging multiple times. So when and when did the program start? Was it the spring? Yeah, it, it, it did start um, probably in the first quarter of 2021. And, of course, our plan was intended to start in early 2020, but along came the pandemic, and that really took everyone's attention away from other things, including the public health department, of course. But as 2021 came about, we decided to convene that action committee and start to discuss what this might look like. And so by... Uh, this fall, about November, is when we actually launched the project. And so we currently have identified at least a handful of people in eight of our 11 cities, or however they want to define their community, who say, I like this idea, I'd like to be a part of it and making it happen in my community. Okay, all right. And am I one of those, one of those people that you've identified? You definitely are. Okay, okay. All right. Now, now you know, Pat, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, I do a lot of work around diversity and inclusion and equity. And, you know, very often the phrase belonging is associated with that kind of work, you know, and, and uh, particularly around the, the concept of human inclusivity. And a lot of times people use the phrase interchangeably, inclusivity and belonging. Have you gotten anybody... You know, I mean, this is a wonderful concept, okay? I mean, I know that you believe in it, and I know that your colleagues at the public health department believe in it, but have you gotten anybody that's sort of, you know, like, this is, you know, a little bit too much for Carver County. We, why are we, why are we wanting to do this? Well, you know, Ellie, I have been very pleasantly surprised by the number of communities that have had residents come forth to express their interest in this initiative. And I think that many people have come to recognize that, as has always been, the world is changing. And we live in some very challenging times with a number of social issues, which has divided many communities. And people recognize that for them and their families and their neighbors to function at the most optimal level of physical and mental health that they can throughout their lifespan, they must find a way to take care of each other in spite of their differences and disagreements. And so they and their community can thrive. And so I think because of the vagueness of this concept, some people don't quite get it. Or they're in a position where they very much feel a sense of belonging, welcomed and included in their own community. And they don't necessarily appreciate that there are likely some people in the community that don't feel the same way. And as such, they don't see a need to be working on this initiative. And then we've had a few people that have reacted. Hold on, Pat. Pat, I'm going to interrupt you, okay? And we'll come back to that. But I've got to take a break, unfortunately. Um, And then I'll come back because I want to hear the other reactions that you just started to talk about, okay? 
Very good. Okay, uh, all right, listeners, we've been talking to uh, Pat Stieg, who is with the Carver County Public Health Department here in Minnesota, talking about communities of belonging. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, Ellie 2 Radio. We're back, Kelly 2.0 Radio on AM 950. We've been speaking with Pat Stieg from the Carver County Public Health Department, and we've been talking about this wonderful, I mean really wonderful, Communities of Belonging program. Now, Pat, before we took our break, you had said you, you, you're pleasantly surprised at how people have been, come forward and been so positive about it here in Carver County, which, which you know, I, I'm just saying, okay, probably is not, known for adopting a lot of progressive ideas. Uh, that's a very broad generalization and stereotype, I'm sure, on my part. But then you, before we took the break, you were going to say, but there have been some other reactions. And can you go ahead and detail that for us? Sure, yeah. As I mentioned, some people um, feel very welcomed in their community, and so they don't always appreciate the fact that there are others in their community who may not feel the same way. Now, we've had a few people who have reacted with some skepticism and asked questions that I would say kind of fall under the idea of, well, what is this really all about? And that's okay. You know, as long as they can see that what this is really all about is creating community where everyone belongs and they share that goal with us then they are welcome to bring their ideas and perspectives into the conversation as well. Sure. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, uh, I mean, generally diversity is about diversity of ideas as well as all kinds of other things, skin color, gender, you know, LGBTQ status and all that. Um, now, Pat, you also, as part of this communities of belonging, you have this, this thing that you do called uh, living room conversations. And could you explain what, what those are? Because I will tell you, when I participated in your living room conversation, I actually came on the show afterwards and I talked about it, you know, because you may remember we had a, we had a, a woman of Somali descent who has been living in Carver County for what, 15 or 20 years. And she was talking about how welcome she felt in the county, which I thought was just quite wonderful. So what are the uh, living room conversations? Yeah. So living room conversations is an organization that works to, heal society and the divisions we are experiencing by connecting people across our divides to guided conversations designed to build understanding and transform those communities. And these conversations can occur virtually or face-to-face in small groups that might be the size of what you would accommodate in your living room. And I first learned about this after reading an article in the Star Tribune a little over a year ago, and I got in touch with the organization to find out more about it because I thought it could be a very useful resource as we were going about planning this community of belongings initiative. And uh, I had the good fortune of being part of a cohort of people who were going to receive some extra training, if you will, um, to be hopefully a little more skillful in guiding these conversations. The concept itself is very straightforward, and anyone could really guide the conversation. But I was thankful to have that opportunity to get some exposure and get a little mentoring and practice at doing it. 
So, and so how many uh, commu- uh, living room conversations have you done now? Well, I initially did uh, three different conversations with both a national and international um, audience on different topics before I kind of re- uh, completed the training program. And then since then, as we launched this initiative, um, I hosted a session that is actually on the topic of belonging, which is one of those that you participated in. And um, the Living Room Conversations actually has guides to have conversations on over 130 different topics. Wow. And some of them are kind of timely, like they have different topics on various aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, as well as topics that are kind of timeless in terms of questions like um, how do we uh, value money? and racism and other types of topics like that. So I, I held um, eight sessions of the belonging topic at different times of day just to give our audiences in Carver County ample opportunity to sign up for a topic that they all enjoy. And then I have another series that I'm going to be doing later in April on the topic of uh, civic engagement. Great. And so do you need to be a Carver County resident to participate in these uh, living room conversations? Um, the ones that um, are done at kind of at a national level, anyone on the planet can participate. And the ones that I do in, in Carver County, of course, I send out the invitation to people who are engaged in this a communities of belonging work, but right. certainly anyone is welcome okay. to participate. Okay, well, that's just good to know. I mean, I know that we have listeners from Carver County, and you know, and if they want to know more about uh, the living room conversations or the communities of belonging program, how could they find that out? Yeah, they could go to our Carver County website and look under the public health department, and we uh, have information posted there, and we're. Um, updating it as we speak. So they'll find more information there. Well, Pat, I've got to tell you, you, you are the, one of the reasons why I did get involved with the communities of belonging is that you and you have a colleague named Diane are so enthusiastic about it. I mean, this does not seem like, you know, this is like an added burden to Pat Steig, you know, on top of other things that you're just kind of mechanically going through. I mean, it, your enthusiasm for it is contagious and, and it's, you know, I, and I, I just got to tell you it's it for, on my ex, uh, part, a, a little unexpected, but I'm thrilled. So tell us a little bit about you. Are you an idealist? I ask everybody on my show about this. Are you an idealist? And if you are, what made you that way, Pat? Well, you know, I never really thought of myself that way, but I guess um, in, in many ways, I guess I am um, in that I, I, I truly believe that the conditions that humans um, live in are by and large uh, created by fellow humans. And whether we um, made intentional choices or unintentional choices, um, we, we are living with those choices as a society. And that, therefore, gives us the opportunity to change things. <laughs> we, we created these things, and we can change them if we choose to. And so that, I guess, makes me an idealist, and that I think that we all have very much similarities, no matter who we are or where we come from, of what we'd like to experience in our lives 
and what we'd like to leave for future generations. So we just have to continue to work at that together, and we can make that happen for each other. Did you, was there somebody in your life as you were growing up or, you know, did you have some kind of experience? I mean, recently we did a show and we had somebody talk about surviving 9-11, which changed the way that he viewed the world. And he went on to go. Now he's working for the RFK uh, uh, Center for Human Rights uh, or RFK Human Rights, excuse me. Um, you know, did you have some kind of experience or was this just, you know, something that came along for you? Well, you know, I guess I would say it kind of came along for me, and it kind of went hand-in-hand with just my general life experience, but also with my public health career. Um, You know, I grew up in a community that was pretty homogeneous. It was a, a smaller community, and as I went out into the world and got exposed to different things, my perspectives changed about uh, people and ideas and other things. But also in my public health career, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years in our field, we've talked a lot about what we call the uh, social determinants of health, which is really the conditions that we all live in that either allow us to live a healthy life or perhaps uh, uh, throw up barriers for us to live a healthy life. And that's a little different for different groups of people. And so that's where... Um, this whole idea kind of came about for me that it's beyond just um, individual illnesses, diseases, um, risk factors, etc., that there's these underlying conditions that really keep people from living the healthiest life they want to. And in most cases, it it isn't their fault. It's just the conditions that surround them, and those conditions can be changed. Well, and sometimes those, I mean, sometimes those conditions are attitudes towards people who are different. Uh, sometimes those conditions are, I mean, uh, I, Pat, I, you know, I think I've talked to you about, I mean, there are disparities even in the, you know, the wonderful, I mean, a very, very well-regarded Carver County um, public school system. And there are disparities based simply, it looks like on skin, co- on the basis of skin color as, as test, re- you know, as uh, test scores seem to reveal. You know, and, and so, and in Carver County, I mean, there are a lot of communities, right, that, that are invisible, that aren't necessarily seen. I mean, I mean, I'm part of the LGBTQ community in Carver County. I, it's hard for me to find other people from that community, but I know that they're there. I absolutely know it. And, you know, and, and we have people of color in Carver County. We have people with different religious uh, values in uh, Carver County or no religious value. And so I think that this is just a wonderful program as a way to get everybody to understand that the county, that the government, that our leaders really value them, right? Absolutely. Well, listen. Yeah. I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. What no, you gonna I was say? just going to say, uh, as you were talking, Ellie, I, I think that's one of the things that we discover as we have the opportunity to interact with people who are different from us, whether that just be... Um, a, a different religion, a different um, point of view, a different experience, is we come to not only uh, recognize our similarities, which are probably bigger than the differences, but we also recognize the differences and we understand where different people are coming from and how we need to um, respect and honor and understand that if we're all going to be able to thrive together. 
Well, I think that's a really great way to end the interview, <laughs> Pat. <laughs> and so, listen, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. I really appreciate you being here. And I wish you great success. And I will, I'll be there helping to the extent that I can with Communities of Belonging. Okay? Thank you very much, Ellie. And thanks for the opportunity to be here with you today. Thank you, Pat. We've really appreciated having you. Okay, listeners, that's, that was Pat Steeg with the public, uh, Carver County Public Health Department uh, talking about Communities of Belonging. Um, if you want to know more, go to the Carver County Public Health website or Carver County excuse me, Carver County website, and you'll be able to drop down to the public health department and you'll learn more. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll do my C block. Thanks so very much. And we're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Okay, uh, this is the C-Block, where I talk about my work. And uh, so this week, I went to Norfolk, N-O-R-F-O-L-K, although some in Norfolk call it North Fork, and apparently there's some history there that I'm not going to get into. Um, Norfolk, Nebraska, population 24,000, fifth largest city in Nebraska. Uh, I went there to to do my gray area thinking human inclusivity talk to community members and uh, a transgender 101 talk uh, to a local community college. The I was sponsored in, uh, mainly by the Northfolk Area Pride Organization, which is only two years old, but I've just got to tell you, I could not believe at how well organized this this group was. I mean... They had, they had food, they had pamphlets, they had name tags, they had a list, they, they, everything worked like clockwork. It was unbelievable uh, to be able to work with such a great organization. But let's just get to really what happened. And what happened was I trained, probably spoke to, I don't know, 100, 250, 300 people in the course of an evening and then the next day till four o'clock with three different talks, as I said. And I've got to tell you, I was blown away. I mean, this is rural Nebraska. This is red Nebraska. I was blown away by the positivity around human inclusivity, around being good to other humans, regardless of who they were. We had in the audience on one of the trainings the mayor of the city, who um, I enlisted to help with a role play, and uh, two nuns. And the nuns were like totally engaged, totally sharing about things. I just, it was unbelievable. And then uh, the next day I had the, the town fire chief and, and assistant fire chief there. They were engaged. I mean, people, it, people were, it was just so eye-opening for me. No, not really. That's not right because I've been telling all of you here on the show for, you know, the better part of, certainly since I moved to Victoria out in Carver County, I've been telling you, 
you know, these stereotypes that we have about people, about red and blue, about conservative or not, or about, you know, Trump or, or, you know, Biden or whatever, you know, you're that camp, not this camp, you know, it just turns out that if we give each other an opportunity to get to know each other, a lot of that stereotype falls away. It really does. And, you know, I, we had, I mean, we had people sharing things that were, I had one woman come out <laughs> at, I mean, literally at one of the trainings saying, I've never told anybody this about me before as it relates to her sexuality. And then we had, uh, I did the Trans 101 at the community college. We probably had about 120 people in the audience, I would guess, something like that. Um, and I mean, you know, and, and, um, when I, you know, I got done talking about how to be welcoming to trans people, what it means, means to be transgender and, 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 uh, I took questions and I had a, I mean, I had a grandmother raise her hand, want to know that because I talked about the States where the well, we were talking about birth certificates and whether, you know, there are some states that don't allow, won't even allow anybody to change their birth certificate. And the grandmother raised her hand and she said, is Hawaii one of those states? Because I have a grandchild in Hawaii who is changing genders. That was the phrase that she used. And I don't want my grandchild to be in a state where they can't change their birth certificate. And this wonderful, wonderful grandmother went on to relate how... You know, I think that their grandchild is 14 or 15 years old, how they had come out last summer from Hawaii to visit and how in, at the end of the visit, they told the grandmother that they were really not a girl, but really a boy. And they asked the grandmother to start using, you know, boy name and, and boy pronouns. And the grandmother said that she was doing that. She, she admitted, you know, in front of everybody, she was having difficulty because, you know, she had to work at it, but boy, she wanted to do it and she wanted to get it right. I thanked her for loving her grandchild. It was very moving. There were people in the audience as she was speaking that were crying that this woman, older, older woman, would care. And everyone, that's what it's about. It's about caring. Okay, well, that's all the time I have for the C Block. I want to thank my producer, Patrick, who has had to do a math again, but he's always comes through and does a great job. To you, my listeners, please follow the show, <clears throat> share about the show, um, because I'm trying to get it as big as possible. I appreciate what you do uh, when you listen. And, and now, between now and next week, okay, next weekend, we're going to have a great interview. Um, trust me, we've got somebody great coming up. But between now and then, go out and do something. Use some compassion and work to make the world better, okay? Thanks, talk to you next week, bye-bye. Okay.